Can you hear me now? Hey! That's not live, it's Memorex. Again, I'm over 40. Now, what's Memorex? Exactly. Out of curiosity, uh, as we're getting Philippians 3, 1 through 9, uh, how many people do we have in here who have sang as a group? Choir, those sorts of things. How many we got as uh, sopranos? Raise your hand. Joe, won't look around. Altos? Lots of altos. Lots of mid-range. Tenors? Where's my tenors at? There we go. And, and who's in the basement? Where's the bass, bass guys at? There we go. So there you go, Joe. You have an opportunity to assemble a group of people at some point to do something really cool. I got thinking about that with, you know, Phil with the djembe up there, and, and Andrew comes up and sings, and you bring a wonderful cast of people coming up, and it's, it's just awesome. It's, it's awesome to see all this talent, and I can be the sound guy. No. <laughs> Jeff's like, no, you can't. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I can't even be that. So <laughs> I can listen and go, wow, that was really, really good. That's, that's what I can do to that. So some thoughts. So if you've got a thought about like that, Joe, Joe like me, plans... Just in enough planning ahead to make sure that something happens when it happens. That'd be a good way, and Joe is flexible with his plans. So if the desire of yours to be a part of that, do Joe a favor and reach out to Joe. <laughs> yeah. Philippians 3. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have a reason for confidence also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, so the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you had any money in the last few months of 2008 and the first year of 2009, that would have been a great, 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 great time to buy a house. Because we were in the middle of what was known as the Great Recession. You see, from the early 2000s up until that moment, we were all taught that a house was an investment. That by purchasing a house, it was going to appreciate it in value and it was every bit as much of your retirement program as anything else that was out there. As good, as, as good or better than your 401k, as good or better than the stock market, as good or better than anything else you could do, houses went up in value because they don't make more land, do they? Remember those conversations? And so it was so good you didn't even have to make a payment on the house while you were making the house payment. You're like, what do I mean by that? You could take out a loan that was interest only, meaning every time you paid each month, you weren't paying down the debt on that house because the theory was that in three to five years, that house was going to be worth so much money that you could refinance it 
and then start paying on it, which was okay because you were smart. You were a savvy real estate investor. People in Florida had 15 to 20 homes they were owning each, where they had no money on any of them. But they every month put their money into those 15 to 20 houses. Every month, house flippers showed up and they worked hard to get those things done and ready for the next person to get. Why? Because they were savvy investors. They were pouring every ounce of everything they had in the thing that they knew was going to make them a millionaire. And then something happened. Someone said, hey, we want that money you owe us. And nobody had it. And the whole thing fell apart. One investor was quoted as saying, I just hope we can get out before this house of cards gets kicked over because he knew what it was. Every payment a person was making at that moment, wasn't not, it just wasn't not only that you were throwing money away, it's that with every payment, you were actually costing yourself more money. They were saying for every $100 you were paying in, you were going $150 in debt. It'd be like depositing 500 bucks in your bank and checking your balance, and your balance says you now owe 750. So you put another 750 in, and it says you now owe 2,000. And you're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. To put it in context, if you were to have uh, purchased a house in 2003 in Cape Coral, Florida for $275,000, in 2009, you would owe $275,000 on a house that was now worth $70,000. And the bank would say, we would like our $205,000, please. Or we'll take it from you and we'll sell it to, by the way, Bob Crane's sister, who was one of the lucky ones who actually had money at the end of 2009, for $70,000. Everybody believed that they had the way to prosperity. Everybody believed that they had the solution. And everybody believed they had what they needed to make it work. And what they found out was the more they invested in their plans the more their plans were falling apart and taking them down. Bad investments. This morning, Paul is talking to the church at Philippi about people who make bad investments and try and drag the rest of us down with them. But he starts on a positive note. He says, finally, my brothers, and people always make the joke, well, he's a pretty good preacher because he's only halfway through the sermon, and he says, in conclusion, that's not really what that word is there. It's, It's more like to continue on the thought that he, was, he had before, rejoice in the Lord. Be happy in the Lord. All through this passage, Paul has been explaining different aspects of, of happiness. He started out sharing how happiness is found in sharing the gospel. He continued on with how happiness is, is on focusing God. He talked about how f- happiness is found in serving one another. And now he says, let me say it again, but a little more direct. Through all of these things, your happiness must come from one source. You're happy when you share the gospel, but that's not your source. You're happy when you serve together, still not your source. You're happy when you focus on God for your circumstances, but the reason for that, in spite of your circumstances, but the reason for that is if you want to find true happiness, you find it in Christ alone. His entire point in the entire chapter of, of, uh, or his main point in the entire chapter of verse 3 is rejoice in the Lord. Make God the source of your happiness. Don't make real estate investments the source of your happiness. Don't make how your kid did at the ball game last night the source of your happiness or what college you're going to go to. Don't make your job the source of your happiness. Don't make your spouse 
the source of your happiness. Don't make yourself and your plans the source of your happiness. That's too much pressure on you. That's too much pressure on them. And it was never how we were designed. Rejoice in the Lord. What does that look like? You know, it's funny, uh, Joe and I were talking just before the service uh, uh, about how sometimes we tell you, we want you, to know, we want you to do something, or we want to tell you to stop doing something. And we spend too much time telling you what we want you to stop doing. And we need to really start to flip it to, what is it that we want you to do? Well, here, I thought it was funny because Paul actually starts with a negative, but it's not that he's telling them what to stop doing, he's telling them what to avoid. Paul's saying, if you want to be happy in life, you've got to make Jesus the number one priority and source of that happiness. And if you want to be that, have that be the number one source of your happiness, then you have to go on to verse 2, and you need to look out. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, because we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, Paul preached the gospel of grace. Paul came to Philippi and he shared with Lydia and others what it meant to be a follower of Christ Jesus and that your sins could be forgiven and that there was problems in life that you couldn't control anymore and he could take care of all those problems for you and that a life lived of happiness and a life lived with joy and a life lived worth living is one where Christ is first. And then in Galatia and other towns, Paul would leave those towns and he would go minister in other areas. And this second group would show up. And they'd say, you're Christians? Well, what a coincidence. We're Christians too. But we're Christians who are also Jewish. Oh, you're a Christian who's a Gentile. Oh, my goodness. Well, then you haven't heard the whole story, have you yet? Yeah. Have you been circumcised yet? They're going, what's circumcision? Well, you gotta, you got to be circumcised. You, you got your sins forgiven, but you now want to live for God, don't you? Don't you? Don't you? Yeah, you want to, right? Okay, you got to do that. And I saw you over there working with that ox, but today's the Sabbath. Oh, you sinned. Here, here, I'm, I'm going to sell you a couple of doves. You got to cut those things in half. You got to burn them. You got to walk through them. I'll show you how to do it. You got to do all these things. I'm coming back tomorrow to tell you more about what Paul didn't tell you about your relationship with God. There's a whole list of rules. And you've got to follow those rules. If you don't follow those rules, I don't know that you're going to be a follower of God. Because I got hundreds, thousands of years of history tells me this is how this looks. And so the church started to divide up to a group of people who were, who were living out the life that God had called them to, who were living out a life of faith based on God is going to forgive my sins. And then there was these other people going, you're not in the in club because you do this when you should be doing that. And Paul has a fit. Paul does not go for this one bit. He talks about it in the church of Galatia. And he says, you know, I got there. He says, I saw Peter having lunch with those dogs. He says, I love Peter. I love him to death, but I had to remind him, those guys over there, they're tearing down those guys over here. Don't waste your time with those guys over there. He said, well, that's kind of harsh. Very harsh. Very serious. Because Paul says, stay away from those dogs. And he knows his words. Because do you know what the Jewish people who still believed you had to keep the old rules call Gentiles who don't keep the rules? Junkyard dogs. 
bunch of savages, a bunch of garbage. And Paul says, look out for those dogs. Look out for those people, those evildoers who are going to bring this in. The only requirement for us to receive this gift of God is that we believe in him. It's not anything we work at. It's a decision we're called to make. Romans 4, Paul says, Now to the one who, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a favor, but as an obligation. But the one who does not work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's spreading this truth of righteousness, this truth of God making you acceptable. And he says, I have zero tolerance for this sort of teaching. He says, these guys are coming out preaching this garbage, and I'm telling you, grace alone and anything beyond grace alone distorts it. Or as my grandpa says, if anyone wants to add to the Ten Commandments, run, don't walk the other way, was what he told us as kids. And he said, we don't sacrifice doves, and we don't do this, and we don't do that. I'm, I'm sure we don't. And I don't brag about what Christ has done in my heart. I know that's what Christ has done. That is 100% his work. But that doesn't mean I won't show off a little bit about how much I pray. I tell you, you may need to be doing it. You may tell me that you recite the Pledge of Allegiance with your kid before they go to school each morning because you're a good American. And I'll say, well, in my house we homeschool. And we recite the Apostles' Creed. That's the way to go. And you should too. I may not uh, brag about the idea that, uh, that, that I'm fasting, but I may make sure I have lunch with you so you can see how just terrible I look that I'm fasting and I'm hungry and I'm starving, even though it may mean I've only skipped one lunch. I may not have any of these areas where I'm telling you, you have to do something, but I may have a whole lot of areas where I'm showing you what I'm doing. I said, hey, it's not, the left hand may not know what the right hand is doing, but that doesn't mean the right hand can't brag to you a little bit about how much I'm giving. You know? Because you'll be blessed by it. It's my testimony. You don't have the same testimony? Well, I'll pray for you. I will pray for you. I'll make sure that, 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 that you get that. That's, that's on the lighter side. I loved one Sunday I was coming into church, and uh, a woman had stopped me and asked me, uh, one of the churches here in the area, where it was, and I'm like, well, we're here, they're over there. And uh, she says, how does she say it? She says, now does your church worship God in all of his fullness? Yep. I think we do. I said, we have, you know, we have a good worship service on Sunday mornings. It's kind of a blended service. She goes, oh, I like that word blended. It's when people just don't know what the full gospel looks like. I think I got to bless your heart by the Pentecostal is what I got. <laughs> or a Midwest nice. And so I, I said, well, you have a blessed day as I was walking to the church. And she says, well, you have a blessed week. And, uh, and, and I said, well, you have a blessed lifetime to eternity. And I shut the door as fast as I could. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> yeah! I win. Point River Valley, right? <laughs> she wasn't showing me up. And she wanted to make sure I knew I didn't have the full gospel. She had the full gospel. And churches do it in other ways, too. Uh, there are people, that, as, as adults, I, I, uh, I'll share with you a, a true confession of mine. I have never been baptized as an adult. I grew up Dutch Reformed. We were baptized as babies. I, we were in churches where it like, never worked out to got, get baptized, and I've just never made it the priority it probably should be. Now, some people may be saying, I don't know if you should be up here preaching. 
Other people may be saying, I'm not sure he's even saved. And Paul would be saying, get away from him, you dogs. It's just as simple as that. Paul says, don't add anything to the gospel. Watch out. People are going to show up at your church. They're going to have good arguments, good arguments, for the things that they think the church should add to it. Because that's kind of how we work. We always think we have to add a little bit more. I won't say you're not going to get into heaven because if you drink, you smoke, you swear, you go to the movies, you dance, you're a woman who wears slacks, you don't speak in tongues, you aren't praising the Lord right. But what I might say is, I'm not so certain if you're saved in the first place because you're missing something that I consider essential. Then there's the pressure I put on myself to meet that measure. If I truly believe I am doing something to get favor with God, then I have got a lot of work ahead of me, and I am in real trouble. I may not be tempted to boast in compliance with the law of Moses, but I may be tempted to look at how my prayer life is this week and say, I don't measure up, I wonder if I should get back to the church again. I may be tempted to look at some other ways. And it's okay if you're looking at those ways because you know there's opportunity for growth. Every one of us is growing, and we're going to hit on that in a minute. But if you're looking at those things and going, I'm not even certain if I have the assurance of salvation because there's some value that I hold to that I'm not measuring up in, you're in real trouble. And oftentimes when people have that list, the best way I heard it was a guy years ago. He said, you'll find with people who have a list like that, their life looks like a fortress. And it's got alligators and it's got a moat and the drawbridge must go down for you to get in because they're going to protect their whole life. But if you check the back of the property, you'd find a rusty swinging gate that's letting anything in that wants to get in. Because we put so much pressure on ourselves to appear out here that everything's going great. How much time do we give the Lord to examine what's in here and what's in here? My faith has got to be in Christ alone. And I need to root out those areas where my faith has got anything to do outside of that gospel. But Paul goes on with that. And he says, we are the circumcision. And I've kind of already covered that. If you want to talk about what a, what a true circumcised life is, what a true circumcision of the heart is, it's a heart that says in Christ alone. It's a heart that says, I don't have anything to give until I have something from you that I've received, until I've taken in your love and your grace in my life. And, God, and Paul goes on to that to say, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. And then in verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else think he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, when those guys show up, and they did this, by the way, for a different reason in the church in Corinth, they're going to ask you, does Paul have his papers? Does Paul have his seminary degree that proves to you that he is worthy of God to be heard from? Because we've got papers. Does Paul have his papers? And Paul says, let me tell you, when they show up with that argument and they have this confidence in who they are, say, let me introduce you to Paul. He's my starter player on the dogs of war that we're about to have. He was circumcised on the eighth day, ladies and gentlemen. He comes from a good heritage. He comes from the tribe of Judah. Let's hear it for that. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a real guy when it comes to being a, being a Jew. And when you talk about the law, a Pharisee. Huh? Not too shabby. Paul's got some good credentials going on here. As to zeal, why just the other day I saw him picking up letters 
to take around to churches to root out people who didn't think like we do. That guy could take on a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, the ability to keep the law, Paul was blameless. He said, if you want to hold up a who's who, who is the MVP of this thing, I can take them down every single time. And then he says, but when I look at that, whatever I gain, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For sake of Christ. For years, Paul placed his confidence in his obedience, in his heritage, in his holding others accountable to be like him. With pride, as I said, he requested papers with permission to arrest and kill Christians because they refused to live like Paul knew they should. And Paul says, one time all those things were in this column I listed, listed as assets of Paul. Now I move them over into the expense column because every investment I made there almost cost me everything. And he goes on, furthermore, in verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul says, I had it all. I had the perfect career. Everything was going my way. I was following religious rules to a T, and I knew in my heart of hearts I was 100% right that this is what God demanded of me until it's mine and my own business on a road to Damascus. And I was stopped by Jesus. And he said, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul knew everything he'd been doing was in the debt column, not in the asset column. I often think about that three days. Because after that, Paul was blind. Remember for three days he was blind? What do you think's going on in those three days? I think you're up and down that 12 steps of AA over and over again. Taking the inventory. Realizing that you are powerless. All of those different components of it. Putting a list together of people who you owe an apology to. I can't imagine after the life he lived and knowing that 100% of it was nothing to realize that. And I think you need the three days. I can, I can tell you on a, on a much, much smaller scale, if I'm having an argument at work and I'm fighting about it and everything else, if it's on a Thursday or Friday, I disengage from that fight until Monday. Because on Thursday, I know I'm right. I got it. And I know how to formulate that argument. Somewhere between Saturday and Sunday, it's all picked apart through prayer and just time pondering it. And by Monday, I'm finally ready to do something that's of use to somebody instead of just making Bob Crane right. I think those three days for Paul were a lot like that. And I, I mean, on a scale that, that dwarfs the magnitude of that, was those moments where God came into his heart and just says, Paul, it's time to take inventory. And then when that stage is done, it's time to call it for what it is. And this says, I count it all rubbish. That was a very nice phrase they used in the ESV and the NIV. More literal translation was that it was camel dung or sheep dung. Basically, Paul was saying, everything I'd poured into, everything I'd invested in, was so lowly it was worth being scooped up and thrown away. And that's all the more that it had for it. I've always pictured Paul getting his sight back and someone saying, here are your things. And in the middle of those things, I picture Paul seeing those papers that were so precious to him just a few minutes, a few days earlier, and him saying, throw them in the fire. I don't need them anymore. They don't mean anything to me. 
Lee Strobel is a, a gentleman who for 14 or 15 years worked for the Chicago Tribune as an uh, investigative journalist. He broke news about, a, you know, tell you the age, of a Pinto problem in Winnemac, Indiana. He broke uh, different stories about uh, unsafe food conditions throughout the Chicagoland area. He won awards for how great he was at investigative journalism, and people would tell him what a cynic he was, and that was meant as a compliment because he was an investigator at his heart. And as a cynic and as an investigator, he was an atheist because it just didn't add up. And then one day he started noticing some changes going on in his wife's life. Like, why is she suddenly happy? We're not happy people. We don't do happy. Why is she not agreeing with me on these things I complain about? We, this is us. We sit at dinner each night and we talk about how dumb the rest of the world is and how smart we are. This is what we do, you know. And then she started disappearing on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And he's like, is she seeing somebody? What's going on here? So she, he asked and she says, I've been going to church and I've been afraid to tell you, but I'm now a Christian. And he just, oh my goodness, he couldn't believe that she'd done something so stupid and foolish as that. It's got to be some cult she joined that sucked her in. And so Lee, being the investigative journalist, said, I am going to write a great article on this church that manipulated my wife. And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to pick it apart, but I'm an investigative journalist. So I'm going to go in and I'm just going to listen to what they have to say and I'm going to put it all together. And I'm assuming you can guess the story by the end of that. At some point, Lee found himself at the altar of that church giving his life to Christ. And for the better part of 10 years after that, he served as a pastor at Willow Creek Community Church. And I believe he's got a, a, video, uh, a Christian video series now called Faith Under Fire. And Lee says, you know, I spent so much life as a cynic. I spent so much time as that. When people say, oh, you're Lee. You won this award back in 1978. He says, it doesn't even register with me anymore because it doesn't matter compared to the glory, the surpassing glory of what I found with Jesus Christ. And Paul learned on that Damascus Road that no amount of work and no amount of following a set of rules was going to make him right with the Lord. The only thing that would make him right is accepting that free gift. In verse 9, he says, And being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul realized, Paul already had a righteousness um, before he came to this. He had his own form of it. And he realized now that that righteousness, it was garbage. And the righteousness he needs now is a one that comes from God. We talk about Christianity, and we talk about righteousness, and we talk about being right, but sometimes I think we could do more time to unpack that. That, that could almost be a sermon in and of itself, and I, I promise you I won't do a second sermon inside the sermon. That would not be good. But righteousness, this idea of being made right, is really also an idea of being made accepted. In other words, as I'm looking at you, and I'm saying, do you have a performance record which is going to open your door to the opportunities I have? Your resume is a form of your righteousness when it comes to your job. It's a thing that says, here are the things that I've done. This is me validating that you should hire me because I have all the qualifications to get this thing done. When you go and you apply for a uh, loan on a house, they're going to look at your righteousness. They're going to look to say, did you pay your debts on time? Do you make enough money to have these things happen? When your kids, some of you have kids going into college, they want to know how is your kid's educational righteousness. 
Did they have good grades in school? Did their ACT score above a, what is that, a 31 or 32 now, I think they're looking for. They're looking for like an ACT in the astronomical numbers. All of these ways is saying you're capable of doing what we want you to do. You're capable of showing up to work on time and doing a good job. You're capable of, of coming to this school and actually graduating. And you're capable of actually paying the debt that I'm going to put on this house for you. In life, everyone has a performance record. No matter what it is, we all have it. The problem is, is that in our faith, many religions think it's the same thing with God. We picture, even if we don't say it out loud, God has some cosmic account He's keeping on each and every one of us. And if we get a passing grade, we're in, we're accepted. Oftentimes, as we've said, it can be the religious things. Other times, it can be the moral things. It can be the things that says, what have I done here on earth? We almost get this picture that when we show up to the pearly gates, the first question we're going to ask is, did I pass? This is a form of righteousness, the concept of being made right. And Paul said, get away from those dogs. Because Paul says, for the first time in history, we have an approach to God that doesn't depend on my record, because my record might be good, and my record might even be great. But Paul says, I'm going to partner you with a guy whose record is perfect. And that's Jesus Christ. We look at our faith in, in a lot of times we talk about the forgiveness of God, and that is a huge part of our faith. But Paul and elsewhere, we see over and over again this concept of being made right, this concept of being made righteous. In other words, yes, you're forgiven, but you're also now acceptable. You can also now come in because of who you know and who you are with Jesus Christ. And too often we spend a lot of our time with the forgiveness side, that's great. And then we worry too much about whether or not we're acceptable. And we worry about whether or not we measure up. And Paul is saying, if you want to measure up, the first thing you want to do is stop trying to measure up because it's exhausting and you're never going to get there and it's going to beat you up every day. But when you partner with Jesus, suddenly you're going to have a desire to do those things because you know they have nothing to do with measuring up. My aunt and uncle recently went on a cruise with somebody and uh, uh, they got, my, my uncle is, God bless him, he's one of the cheapest people I've ever met in my life, but he likes cruises. So he got the cheapest, most nasty room you ever got. It, it would just be horrible. To, it'd be like, you know, just sitting in the dungeon at the bottom of the Titanic for seven days or something like that. That's, that's what he got because that's how much money he was willing to invest. Man, I hope they don't listen to these recordings. Love you, Joe. Um, he went with a couple who doesn't believe in doing anything half-heartedly. And so they got the deluxe accommodation suite with the VIP package, with the excursions, with all of this stuff. And they all bought them at the same travel agent. The travel agent just bundled the whole thing as one family going together. And so when Joe and, and my Aunt Carolyn would walk into the, the uh, uh, restaurant, they'd say, oh, you're with the Schneiderman party, but they're not the Schneidermans. Right this way, and they'd open the rope, and all these people would be in a line, and Joe would just walk right up. <laughs> sit down, thank you very much, you know. And then they got into it by day two, day three, they're like, this is pretty good. Uh, we're with the Schneiderman party. Oh, your excursion into the Cayman Islands is right here. Go this way, sir, you know. And here, here's the dune buggy you rented. We apparently we rented the dune buggy. This is phenomenal. And he lived probably one of the greatest, cheapest vacations anybody has ever had because he knew the Schneidermans. And this was all on the up and up. There was nothing wrong about it. It just was his whole uh, the way that he had access to all this stuff 
came because he got it from somebody else. Paul is saying, if you want to be happy, if you want to live a life of true faith, stop trying to figure out how to get yourself to the executive suite of that boat and realize Jesus is already there and he's already phoned ahead your name and you're already there and you can do all of these different things because it is God who made you right. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Your debt is wiped out and we didn't stop there. We gave you full access. In a sermon on Romans, Tim Keller gave this challenge. Tim said, stop looking at your sins. Stop looking at the things that make you feel like you don't matter. Then stop looking at the things you do that make you feel like you do matter. And start looking at the one thing you can boast in. That one relationship that gets you to the exclusive club where everyone there knows you belong because you belong to him. Faith in God is all about our whole faith in God. It's all about saying how I'm valued, how I measure my worth is because of knowing him. A pastor told a story one time about a, a, a retreat he'd gone on uh, up in, uh, I think, northern Wisconsin. And while there, they had a, a businessman, very wealthy businessman, stand up and give his testimony. And the man said that three years earlier, he'd been to that retreat, but that he was not a believer. And at that retreat, he gave his life to Christ. And the man shared how his entire life had been uh, a righteousness that was based on his own performance. He had a successful business. He was successful in the workplace. Money was how he kept score. He made sure he got to church on Christmas and Easter because that was his duty. But because of the gospel and seeing what Jesus Christ had done for him, he shifted his trust. He stopped keeping score by the dollar. And from then on, he rooted his identity in the wonderful gift of the grace of Christ. And this man's life was changed forever. This man's profession was in wealth management. And he was giving this testimony in 2009 where his investors had lost 70% of their wealth that they trusted him with. Where his name was now mud in the economic community. Where he himself had lost better than three quarters of everything that he had and it was gone now forever, only to have to be built up at some point. And he said, do you know if that had happened four years ago, you would have found me at the bottom of a vodka bottle. Because everything about my identity, everything I knew that I was as a person would have been lost in that moment. And he says, I can tell you that I am happier now sitting here with 25% of everything I used to own, happier now than I have ever been in my entire life. Because I know Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. And I know he has made me right. And I know that if it all gets wiped out tomorrow, he'll still be on the throne. I'll still be his. If I need to find bread to eat, he'll find me bread to eat. If I need a place to lay my head, he'll find me a place to head, lay my head. Because none of those things are important to me. The only thing important to me is that I rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray.